summers, we don't have real scorchers, so I cover up with sunscreen. Before I go out, I sit my sunscreen down by radio, locked to CJSW, 90.9 FM Calgary. It goes from SPF 15 to SPF radio. I'm going to put some on right now. Yeah, you can really feel the radio. CJSW, 90.9 FM, radio you can feel. Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Over 150 wildcat strikes have taken place in the U.S. since March 1st. Workers are organizing, they are resisting. We've seen housing occupations and rent strikes. So as dangerous and challenging as these times are, these are also times for us to look for inspiration in the struggles that are breaking out all around us because there are things we've been building on for years that potentially can be taken to a higher level at a moment where a lot of people get that under capitalism, their lives are not as important as corporate profit and they see that as fundamentally wrong. That's David McNally, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features David McNally on the pandemic and the economy, a radical view. The standard narrative about the current crisis is that the coronavirus pathogen triggered an economic collapse. But what is crucially ignored is that neoliberal capitalism was already weak and stressed out, a pre-existing condition, if you will. That systemic weakness went into freefall when the pandemic hit. In its long history, capitalism has produced many booms and busts, but this period, particularly since Reagan, has produced spectacular inequalities in wealth and income. Tens of millions, if they even have a job, live paycheck to paycheck. We're all in this together, right? That's what the signs say. But not the rich. They have their country estates, yachts, and island retreats to shelter in place. The big question is, once the pandemic abates, are we going to go back to business as usual? Or will there be fundamental change? Our guest today is David McNally. He's professor of history and business at the University of Houston and director of the Center for the Study of Capitalism. He's the author of Blood and Money. He spoke in Houston in late April 2020. And now, David McNally. It's always worth saying, especially because of so much of the discourse that's around right now, that what we're experiencing is not a mere fact of nature. Of course, it has natural environmental foundations. There are bases in human biology and the natural environment which make a virus possible. But the way in which each and every one of us experiences this virus and this pandemic has to do with the social body of which we are a part, and of course of the body politic 
that is to say the organization of political life through which we experience it all. And it's crucial to insist on this because these pandemics are becoming more and more a fact of life in late capitalism. And this has to do with the destruction of the natural environment, with deforestation, with the growth of mega agriculture, with the speeding up of animal and livestock production cycles that make virulent pathogens that are highly transmittable, uh, more and more frequent and more common. So even that element of the pandemic has deep roots in our social organization. In addition, as Kim Moody's pointed out, the circuits of the pandemic have traced the circuits of global production and distribution chains. That's the way it's spread. You can map its transmission as Moody has done, and you can see that it's precisely the globalized structures of production and distribution that it is circuited through. The other point I want to make in this regard is that we live in privatized capitalist big pharma. And as a result, all of our medical and scientific research and pharmacology is devoted to the bottom line. So they don't work on antivirals. They don't work on mass distribution of vaccines and so on, because that's not where capitalist pharmacology finds its markets. And I want to remind you that a pandemic such as this, as disruptive as it is, and as disorienting as it has been, is not a surprise to anybody in the higher echelons of the state. They have had intelligence briefings for over a decade saying that it was simply a question of time before one of these viruses took on pandemic dimensions. And so let me just share with you the cover of a Time magazine from May of 2017 that perfectly illustrates the point. Warning that there's a pandemic coming. We may not know exactly which one it's going to be, but it is inevitable that it will happen. And it looks like the United States, just like every other capitalist power in the world, is utterly unprepared for it. And of course, they're unprepared because the purpose of our social system, the mode of producing life in which we live, is the accumulation of capital by means of the production of profit. And that, of course, I've mentioned in terms of pharmacology, but let me just point out to you a few other highly illustrative points. Since the Great Recession of 2008-9, the number of public health workers in the United States has been cut by 20%. More than 50,000 public health care jobs have disappeared. Looked at it from another angle, about $300 million has been cut from public health budgets in the US over that period of time. So the United States today spends $2 per person on public health, the wealthiest nation in the world. And it is literally a pittance, little bit of spare change 
per person dedicated to public health. Things look utterly catastrophic when we turn to the global south. Coming into this pandemic, 48 nations in the world were spending more on their debt to foreign lenders than they were on their public health care systems. All right. In other words, foreign banks, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank were getting more of their social wealth than the health care systems they had for their people. In a country like Haiti, there are probably something around 50 or 60 ICU beds in the entire country. There are said to be 64 ventilators in Haiti, and doctors on the ground suggest that they'll be lucky if half of them work. If the pandemic takes hold, Haitian medical experts are saying that they will probably lose 800,000 people to it. Now, maybe it won't take hold in Haiti in a big way, but every precondition is there. Lack of adequate sanitation, high poverty rates, inadequate medical infrastructures, and so on. And so you then compound that with what has been happening in the last few months. For instance, since late January, $100 billion in capital has fled the global south. Because what's happening is that global investors are fleeing to safe havens. What that means is it robs all kinds of local economies of a certain amount of wealth that was circulating through them. In addition, migrant workers in the global north are now impaired in their capacity to send remittances from their wages back to their home countries. As a result, an article in the Financial Times this week suggested that 29 million people are being thrown into poverty in Latin America alone right now. So these are all the reasons that I want to insist that the pandemic is as much about a virus in the social body as it is a natural biological phenomenon. And we've got debt crises that are unfolding already for Ecuador, for Zambia, for Lebanon, for Argentina. We're seeing essentially all of sub-Saharan Africa once more being pushed onto the edge of debt crises. And that's one of the reasons why for the left, the demand for a global debt jubilee has to be at the top of our agenda. Here in the United States, when we argue rightly for the canceling of student debt, for the canceling of rent, and so on, and we should be arguing for all of that, but we cannot forget that the cancellation of all global debts owed by nations in the global south has to be part of this. All of the picture I'm painting is, of course, dramatically compounded by the structures of racial oppression and racial inequality. We know that the pandemic is hitting African-Americans, Latinx people, and indigenous peoples two to three, sometimes four times harder than the rest of the population. The Navajo Nation in, here in the US, for instance, is fighting a rear guard battle against an absolutely raging pandemic in the midst of poverty, lack of sanitation, and clean running water. So if anything, what we're living through really 
underscores Ruth Wilson Gilmore's profound claim that racism specifically is the state-sanctioned production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. In other words, vulnerability to premature death is a key definitive characteristic of racism and racial oppression. And we're seeing that uh, in the most powerfully dramatic and frightening of terms right now as this pandemic spreads. From there, let me shift gears a little bit to the domain of macroeconomics. Because once again, in the mainstream, and particularly from White House commentators and the like, we're getting the claim that, yep, this downturn in the economy is bad, but it's going to be V-shaped, by which they mean it's going to go down sharply, and then as soon as we get the pandemic under control, it's going to bounce right back up. So it's going to look like a V. And that's part of their cheerleading chorus to keep capitalist spirits up. And maybe if it was just a result of the pandemic, perhaps there'd be some validity to this. But of course, that's not the reality. The world economy was already in the early stages of a new recession when the pandemic hit. And we can see this in all kinds of ways. I'm just going to share with you a few indicators of how we know that this economy was not resilient, that it was already heading into a new recession. In October of last year, October 2019, industrial profits in China fell by 10%. Industrial output in Germany fell by more than 5%. Canada had back-to-back -back months of job loss in October and November. And in the United States, business investment had declined for nine straight months. So I give you that just to highlight that this was an economy already entering into a new capitalist recession. It was working out the dynamics that had been set in play in 2008 and 9, to which I'll come back to in a moment. The other big indicator we have is that the Federal Reserve Bank in the US was massively intervening in financial markets as early as last September and October. At that point, it saw so-called stress in financial markets. Now, stress is really simple. It means that there are some institutions out there, banks, different kinds of mutual fund organizations and the like that cannot pay their debts. And so the Federal Reserve Bank comes in to, bank stop the, to backstop the system to make sure that nobody goes broke. And so this was all happening, as I say, last fall. Much of this has its roots in the way in which intervention by central banks the world over helped pull the global economy out of the great slump of 2008 and 9. Because it's true that when world financial markets went into meltdown, and I want to remind you, in 2008 and 9, all five investment banks on Wall Street went broke. Every single one of them collapsed effectively. 
but they were bailed out. They were bailed out at public expense by the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the United States. And the same thing happened in Italy and France and England and so on. Throughout all the core capitalist nations, central banks coordinated the most massive rescue operation of the global banking system in, in world history. And they did probably prevent a 1930s style crash when they did that. And so at one level, they saved their system. But the problem is that that kind of financial intervention blocked capitalism's own inherent recovery mechanisms. And what I mean by that is that capitalism to stay vigorous needs brutal slumps and depressions because they've gotten into a crisis because they've overaccumulated capital. They have more factories and can be used profitably, more machines, more shopping malls, more mines, more oil exploration and drilling operations than can possibly be used, more super tankers circuiting the globe, more warehouses and distribution centers than they can profitably use. That's overaccumulation. And when it happens, because each capitalist is investing randomly on their own, trying to get the edge over their competitors, as they overaccumulate the rate of profit, the return on investment goes down. And so as a result, a classic recession or depression drives out the least profitable and the least productive capitalists. It allows those who've survived to restructure and reorganize and eventually to start to invest again because they've got larger market share. However, by intervening massively to preserve the banking system as they did in 2008 and nine, the world's central banks throughout the capitalist core nations essentially prevented bankruptcies and restructuring. That means several things. First, according to pretty good measures, something close to 16% of all companies that have been operating in the US over the last 10 years are so-called zombie companies. That is to say, they're not profitable. They are not in capitalistic terms successful companies, but because there's free money available from the central bank, they've been able to borrow to stay alive. And that's meant, as I said, it blocked bankruptcies, it blocked large scale capitalist restructuring and so on. So the so-called recovery since the great recession of 2008-9 is the slowest on record in the post-World War II period. Growth rates in Europe were around one to one and a half percent. In the United States, they're around two to two and a half percent. And we would typically expect growth rates of five and eight, and in the most dynamic sectors, even 10%. So what we had was a low growth, low wage, so-called recovery that had essentially been backstopped by central banks but it went along with another stock market bubble because if central banks were making money readily available and capitalists weren't investing because there'd been no restructuring and no opportunities for considerable new investment, then they just played with the money. They speculated in stock markets. So we got a low investment, low growth, low wage 
recovery with terrific financial profits for those who were able to speculate. And many of you will recognize that picture I've drawn as what we've been living through for the last decade or so. The recovery, the very anemic recovery from the recession of 2008-9 started to turn down in 2016. And that's when Trump massively cut corporate taxes. That gave a temporary boost to profits and that boost was itself winding down in 2019 in all the ways I was describing earlier when all of a sudden two more shocks hit. And I wanna remind you that it's not just the shock of the pandemic, which I'm going to come back to in a moment, because in much of the global North, the shock of the pandemic was preceded by an oil shock. It's really important to underline this. Oil price globally has been artificially sustained since 2016 by production quotas that were worked out between all the main oil producers. And that allowed them to keep prices artificially high. It meant that all kinds of production of oil, like oil sands and Permian Basin oil production and so on, were profitable because the price was propped up artificially. But as the economy was winding down in 2019, the price of oil started to slide. As we entered early 2020, Saudi Arabia went to the other oil producing nations and said, hey, our prices are falling. Let's cut production further in order to try to generate scarcity rather than oversupply and see if we can stabilize the price. But remember, they said this in a world of capitalist rivalries and competition. And Russia said no. Russia said these high prices just help the US and its oil industry. We're not going along. We're not going to cut production. At which point Saudi Arabia said, fine, then we'll actually boost production and flood the market because we can produce oil more cheaply than anyone else in the world. And Due to this rivalry in the early days of the slump, oil prices started to crash and so did oil stocks. And so we were getting a stock market crash and an oil price crash before the pandemic had really significantly moved out of South, A East A South Asia and East Asia. And that was producing a stock market crisis that the Federal Reserve was already dealing with, and then boom, the next great shock, that of the pandemic, hits late January into February of this year. That hit from the pandemic, of course, has massively deepened and accelerated what was going to be a pretty rough recession in any case. What I'm really trying to highlight for you is that we had a faltering capitalist economy with no resilience left that was hit first by an oil shock and then by a pandemic shock. The effects are clearly catastrophic. We just learned that the US economy in the first quarter of this year contracted by 4.8%. That's huge. That's a massive contraction. And keep in mind, there was still low level growth throughout January, February, 
even perhaps into early March. We'll see as we get all the data. But most dramatically, 26 and a half million workers were added to the unemployment lines in the course of four weeks. Those are astronomical figures. In the case of the Great Depression of the 1930s, it took three years for unemployment to reach 25%. But pretty good studies suggest that probably something in the range of 14 million people have been unable even to file jobless claims over the last month. In other words, that the real figure is somewhere around 40 million U.S. workers thrown out of work in the course of this crisis. And that is August 1932 style numbers. That's about 25% of the workforce in the United States. So we are in a completely different scenario. We're looking at a capitalist recession which has now been compounded by the crisis in the oil markets, followed by the horrific effects of the pandemic. We can't be sure how it's all going to play out, although I will go on the record here and predict it's not going to be V-shaped. There's not going to be a sharp and quick recovery. Whether it's a so-called Nike slash, where it comes up a little bit, and but stays way lower than the original mark, whether it's a long-term U-shape, whether it looks a little bit like a W with the beginnings of a recovery, and then as soon as there's a second wave of the pandemic, it goes back down. I can't be sure, but I'll tell you it's not going to be V-shaped. There's not going to be a sharp bounce back. And the most intelligent of mainstream analysts are saying they don't see how there's anything resembling a recovery for at least three to four years. And one of the things they're really worried about in some quarters is that we might go into a deflationary spiral, one in which compression of wages and low demand and low investment actually start, leads us into price declines. And that's essentially the stagnation scenario at a very low level that Japan has been in for the last 20 years or so. And that's definitely a prospect that's out there. What we can say, and I think we can say with a lot of certainty, is that we're looking at multiple years of mass unemployment, lineups at food banks, battles over debts and evictions, hunger, the racially differentiated death regimes, ongoing crises of care and social reproduction, highly gendered with overwhelmingly women at the home trying to serve as the shock absorbers, absorbers for a system that is collapsing in terms of basic care for people, and of course on the front lines of the healthcare system. And of course, as we know, so many of the frontline workers are workers of color who are massively exposed and susceptible to the spread of the pandemic. We're going to see austerity measures that are brought in by governments as they say, well, now that we kept the financial system alive, we're going to have to turn to tightening our belts. And of course, we know 
what programs they will turn on. They're not going to turn on the corporate handouts. They're not going to turn on the bailouts. They're going to turn on basic social services desperately needed by poor and working class people. And we've got to be prepared for sections of the right to try to mobilize, to use nativism, racism, anti-immigrant sentiment, misogyny, homo and transphobia, and so on, to suggest that their right-wing politics are the answer to a society in crisis and turmoil. But I want to close by spending just a couple of minutes suggesting to you that as challenging, sometimes frightening, as that picture might be, we on the left have some wind in our sails. And we shouldn't underestimate the capacity of the socialist left to take some very significant and meaningful steps forward in this moment of crisis. We have enormous tools at our disposal by way of navigating this kind of economic and political terrain. And we need to remind ourselves that the right will not be able to meaningfully address one circumstance after another where the socialist left is truly equipped. And by that, I mean the right will not be building rent strikes. The right will not be building safety strikes at work. The right will not be helping workers organize unions. The right will not be blocking evictions. The right will not be fighting for environmental justice. It will not be campaigning for Medicare for all, which is, I think, going to reemerge as an absolutely signature front of battle over the next few years. There are all kinds of areas in which the social and political response of the left is capable of resonating very powerfully. And we've seen that already in all kinds of ways. Support for Medicare for all is rocketing again in one poll that we've seen after another, as is basic support for things like opening up luxury hotels to house homeless people as a way of slowing down the pandemic, opening up jails, detention centers, and prisons to get people out before the pandemic spreads. There are all kinds of is in which left-wing demands are resonating and can continue to resonate just as left organizing. Organizing against racism, against evictions, building unemployed workers movements. These are all things that the left of the 1930s learned how to do. And as it learned to fight racism and to fight evictions, to organize the unemployed into actual unions of the unemployed, it laid the groundwork for the great upsurge of the middle years of the 1930s, the mass strikes of 1934 that really turned the tide politically and allowed the left in the United States to grow in the tens of thousands in a way it hadn't in a very long time, and which laid the basis for the huge wave of sit-down strikes that resonated all across the U.S. and brought industrial unionism to the so-called unskilled, often immigrant, often worker of color proletariat of the assembly lines in auto, steel, rubber, uh, and so on. You're listening to David McNally on the pandemic and the economy, a radical view. 
This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and his book, Blood and Money, by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering printed transcripts or PDFs of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. And today, we're coming at all of this on the tales of an enormous feminist insurgency globally. Me too the international women's strikes, the huge feminist uprising in Chile last year, similar campaigns in Argentina and Poland. We're coming at it on the heels of the climate justice strikes where millions, predominantly young people, were taking action in the streets, walking out of schools, and in some cases on a smaller scale out of workplaces. We're coming at it after truly mass strikes last year in places like Chile, Colombia, France, strike waves in Sudan, Lebanon, Iraq, Hong Kong. Of course, in the United States, we also saw strikes of tens of thousands by teachers in Chicago and Los Angeles, strikes that were winning anti-racist and community demands, uh, as well as workplace demands. So I highlight all of that not to be Pollyannish, not to suggest we don't have very difficult conditions and real challenges ahead of us, but there is already resistance. And none of those experiences of 2019 are lost. The best record we have is that over 150 wildcat strikes have taken place in the U.S. since March 1st. In other words, workers are organizing, they are resisting. We've seen housing occupations and rent strikes. I think I want to underline that the socialist left has a vision, we have resources, we have histories that allow us to position ourselves as a meaningful force in this moment of crisis. The socialist left, I think, can grow again. So as dangerous and challenging as these times are, these are also times for us to look for inspiration in the struggles that are breaking out all around us because there are things we've been building on for years that potentially can be taken to a higher level at a moment where a lot of people get that under capitalism, their lives are not as important as corporate profit, and they see that as fundamentally wrong. Some economists are kind of cheerleading the stock market and the state of the economy. We're predicting a quick rebound. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Where might the capitalists try to go from here? What are their possible uh, playbooks And what does that mean for us? I think one of the things that this crisis is going to remind us of is that neoliberalism is not a static thing. It's a dynamic crystallization of certain kinds of policy programs and power relations. But it evolves. It adapts in relationship to its own challenges. And so at the heart of neoliberalism was the attempt to destroy union power as effectively as capital could, and to cut social programs, to restructure the state 
so that market imperatives and market competition moved more centrally through the system and that the buffers that people had that protected them against the ravages of the market, of unemployment, of poverty, of hunger, of ill health, and the institutions that workers historically used for self-protection, unions, that all of that was weakened. But having said that, neoliberalism never meant the retreat of the state. The state was there powerfully repressing. Its military forces were there. Its police forces, its prison industrial complex, as it's been called, massively expanding. Its ability to regulate the financial sector in the interests of capital, none of that was weakened. So it was a class reorganization in favor of capital and away from the working class, and in particular, from the most socially oppressed sections of the working class. Today, they're needing the state much more centrally. I mean, imagine using defense production arrangements to tell General Motors what it has to produce, for instance. In other words, that's an admission that the state is sometimes going to have to overrule the market in navigating through the pandemic. It does not mean for a moment that the fundamental market principles are not in play. It simply means that this is a necessary emergency measure from capital standpoint. I think we're going to see a lot of that. It certainly means that we are into a certain kind of financial Keynesianism, by which I mean so-called helicopter drops of money largely into the financial sector, and then a pittance into the hands of working class people and small business people and so on. And it is a relative pittance. So I think we're going to see a lot of ad hoc adaptations and adjustments. But the truth is, the way the system takes shape over the coming months and years is going to depend more on resistance from below than it is planning from above. In other words, they've got their plans. We know what their playbook looks like. It's a new round of austerity. It's even more savage wage compression as they buffer and bail out the financial system. So we know that's their playbook, but it is yet to be determined how much they can get away with. And they don't know. They will test and retreat. And so I think we need to be clear that it's not that neoliberalism is necessarily over. It's that it will have to mutate again. It will have to evolve and reconfigure itself in terms of those fundamental priorities that I talked about. But they're not sure how much they can get away with. A new round of austerity may be capitalist logic. But at this moment, to start slashing public health, to start slashing food aid, to start slashing programs that provide meals at schools for children and so on, that may run into some resistance. And as a result, I think exactly where they go is going to be determined, at least in some significant measure, by us as by them. I wanted to see if you could speak about just the special role that oil plays in the global economy. 
what the geopolitical complications are, why they continue to force oil production forward and, and have such a devastating impact on the economy, and also just the role of financial speculation. Oil is a bedrock of what I think has rightly been called fossil capitalism. The move from coal to oil and natural gas is just a different kind of fossil capital that took place in the 20th century. Uh, so that it, oil has been a strategic resource, huge for military purposes, and it has become, as I say, a kind of bedrock of the whole system of production and distribution of capitalism for more than 100 years now. And it's therefore treated as a strategic resource. The United States, and particularly the Trump administration, has been huge on oil self-sufficiency, for instance, in a period where forms of protectionism are becoming more distinctive in the rivalry between great powers in the world, not being reliant on anyone else for oil has become huge. And for that reason, the Americans were working with the Saudis to keep oil prices artificially high up until fairly recently, as high as $70 a barrel, for instance, which makes the production that you see in the United States, for instance, shale oil production in Canada, the tar sands, uh, though that kind of production, it makes it financially viable. When that price starts to crash below $50 and then below $30 and recently below $20 and even turning negative for a period of time, then what that means is that there's no financial viability to huge parts of global oil production outside of state support and state bailouts. And there's no question that the Trump administration is trying to figure out exactly what their bailout package is going to look like for the energy industry uh, and that sector, which is another reason of course, for us to be thinking very aggressively, not only around Medicare for all, but the kinds of demands we mobilize around the Green New Deal perspective. Because look, if the oil industry can be bailed out, why cannot the same hundreds of millions go into solar and wind, for instance, into renewables on a mass scale? And that's the kind of green job creation programs that I think the left can be very credibly fighting for and organizing around. You also mentioned financial markets, and that's it's really important because when we were first told that the price of oil had turned negative, that is to say they would pay you to take oil, in fact, what you were being paid to take was a financial contract for oil. Uh, it's basically what's known as a derivative, a financial commodity, a financial instrument that's bought and sold. And it's in financial markets that the short-term price of oil is largely determined, even if it has underlying global market foundations. Speculation around oil prices is a huge industry in finance. It's a huge sector. Uh, as a result, the turmoil has also been, if you will, overdetermined, exaggerated and amplified by people who become so-called short sellers. In other words, people who start to bet that the price is going to fall. And once they start betting that it's going to fall, they bias 
the market in that direction. So there's no question that speculative activity in financial markets has deepened an inherent market slump in oil. And then we've got all the rivalries running through it. The final point I want to make here is no one should think that Trump's latest war threats to Iran are separate from the turmoil in oil markets. The Trump administration knows, like every U.S. administration, that if you threaten war towards Iran, the price of oil rises. It rises because the threat of turmoil in the Middle East, Iran, of course, is itself an oil producer, but the regional instability that that kind of military confrontation produces inevitably creates the fear that oil will turn into uh, short supply very quickly. And so, of course, the price did rally when Trump began to threaten war with Iran. So do not lose sight of the degree to which it was military posturing to help bail out the oil industry. But having said all of that, they're massively overproducing. The demand for oil globally has fallen by at least 30%. They've made production cuts about equal to about 10% of world output. So they're not even close to addressing it. And the reality is that as they move further and further down the road of production cuts, it puts the most expensive producers like the United States, like Canada, uh, in the crosshairs. And so the we've really got to pay attention to the ways in which the Trump administration in particular is going to try to protect big oil and big energy in this crisis. And it's going to be a really good point of intervention for us around the question of capitalist priorities and the alternative of green job creation programs that uh, we can and should be fighting for. Just along those lines, too, you touched on uh, some of the volatility in the Middle East. So many of the economies in the Middle East are very reliant on oil production without profitability there. You know what that means on the ground um, in terms of the political crisis and economic crisis. Um, and it's something that you spoke to in your opening remarks as well about um, the impact of the global south, because there's any number of countries from you know Nigeria to Ecuador um, that are completely dependent on oil exports. Yes. Um, and so now they're getting, you know, hit doubly by the economic crash, the pandemic and um, an oil crash. So if you could say a few, you thought any thoughts about that? Yes, it's going to be hugely destabilizing. And of course, really both regions that you mentioned had us are regions of huge popular insurgency over the last few years. I mean, we have had an, a, a new center of insurgency throughout parts of Latin America that have included Ecuador, which has been very, very hard hit by the pandemic already. Uh, and of course, the semi-insurrectionary mass strike uprisings in Colombia, also an oil and mineral producer, and all of those commodity prices, prices by the way, it's oil's getting particularly savage, but all of those raw commodity producers like those who are producing all kinds of other minerals are going to be suffering hugely in this moment. So you've got a region in which the so-called lost decade since 2008, 9 
was already playing itself out and producing social turmoil from Chile to Colombia to Ecuador. And then, of course, there were mass uprisings in Lebanon and Iraq already that I referred to. We saw big, big protest movements in Iran over the last 18 months or so. So these are socially volatile places that are now going to be savaged by what's happening to oil, natural gas, other mineral and commodity sectors. And I'm not surprised as a result that we've seen a resurgence of street protest in Lebanon. And don't misunderstand me. Obviously, the safest thing is in terms of the pandemic is for people to stay out of the streets. But you can only stay at home if you can survive, if you're free of hunger. And what we're hearing from the protesters in Lebanon is entirely rational and sensible. We would rather die fighting back in the streets than dying of hunger by ourselves at home. That's how serious the turmoil and the crisis is. People cannot access foreign currency, for instance, but the ruling class of Lebanon has been shipping money out of the country so fast it makes us dizzy. And so the class inequalities there. Iraq has a very, very similar picture. I mean, that social insurgency where Tahrir Square in Baghdad was basically turned into a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week people's assembly of mass meetings, healthcare clinics, free public lending libraries, food provision, and so on prior to the pandemic. So I think what we're going to see is what we've already started to see in Lebanon, which is that some of these social movements are going to be back in the streets because social distancing is only viable if there is material means of support, if there are ways of feeding yourself in particular. And in those societies which are at the edge right now of literal social breakdown, I think we're going to see an explosion of social protest and yes watch those areas that are where all of this is compounded by the oil crisis as you mentioned and this is a good jumping off point actually to a couple of questions from our viewers the first two i'll i'll, I'll read together because i think they get some some similar ideas zachary asks uh if government responses are largely articulated in national terms how can we make demands on the state without reproducing this nationalism to the exclusion of other countries? What would a truly internationalist response look like? Uh, and uh, Billy Bob asks, what kind of financial intervention could help developing countries fight and recover from the virus? Let me start with Zach's point, because yes, it's true that in the first instance, our demands are always focused on national states. But for those of us in the global north who are honest about the histories of imperialism of our states, there can be no serious political response from the left that isn't also anti-imperialist, that isn't also challenging the colonial and imperial logics of our own state machineries. And so uh, that's why I mentioned when we were talking about debt when in my opening remarks 
that a global debt jubilee, including canceling all the debts owed to American banks, to all banks in the global north, to the IMF and the World Bank, has to be part of our campaign. Going back to what I was saying about 48 countries spending more on their debt payments to global lenders than on their healthcare systems. For those of us organizing in the US, it means opposing all of the sanctions regimes that the American government has in place. Any sanction regime, whether it's Iran or Cuba or Venezuela, has got to be opposed and dropped. I mean, it is unconscionable that once again, basic medical goods can't get into uh, Iran right now. Similarly, of course, we extend our Palestinian solidarity. Stop the blockade of Gaza right now. Do not turn it into a center of the pandemic because that's what is inevitable uh, so long as the Israeli-driven and U.S.-backed blockade is in place. So I think there are lots of creative ways in which the left can put demands on the state for social provisioning, for Medicare for all, without losing its anti-imperialist commitments and its internationalist obligations. How come we've heard no discussion in the US of what Spain did in the early days of the crisis, where it commandeered private healthcare facilities, took private hospitals and said, these are now in the public domain, subject to public regulation, and we're using them. Now, I would argue that should become irreversible. That should be part of a socialization program for the whole healthcare system. But you can see how on one front after another, food distribution and supply, healthcare provision, housing the homeless, opening the jails and detention centers, bringing about a whole series of campaigns to organize the unorganized, to encourage safety strikes by workers. The fronts on which we can act now are multiple. And I think what we're going to find is it's not the socialist left that needs to be taking the lead. It's happening. Over 150 wildcat strikes, as I mentioned. Mothers in Los Angeles just taking over empty houses and so on. It's figuring out our role in linking these struggles together, helping them develop more robust general solidarities and reinforcing them with the resources, analysis, and feet on the ground uh, that we can bring. But I think there are huge fronts for intervention and we're putting demands on the state, but wherever possible, we're putting demands on the state subject to as much direct involvement of working class people in the decision-making process as possible. And I'll finish on this point. Why, for instance, shouldn't nurses and other healthcare workers in New York be actually now designing the, the healthcare provisioning plans that are needed to confront the next waves of the pandemics. How resources will be distributed, what needs to be produced, how many people need to be trained in basic healthcare to expand the workforce and so on. There are a lot of things that we can do where there can be direct involvement of unions community organizations and so on that are part of putting these demands on the state so that we don't just let unaccountable bureaucracies do it all. 
That was David McNally on the pandemic and the economy, a radical view. He spoke in Houston at the end of April. The event was moderated by Hadis Thier. David McNally is professor of history and business at the University of Houston. He's the author of Blood and Money. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Noam Chomsky, Stephen Bezruchka, Naomi Klein, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs or MP3s of today's program, David McNally on the Pandemic and the Economy, A Radical View, and his book, Blood and Money, just give us a call at one 800 Again, that number is one 800 1977. And in solidarity with you, our listeners, we are offering printed transcripts or PDFs of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1 800 1977. Special thanks to Haymarket Books. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with you too. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.